All right. Hey, make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. Listen, what I'd love for you to do also is I'd love for you to grab something around you if you don't have something to write on, or maybe on the last page of your Bible if you brought that or if you're using an app. I want you to type down what that resolution is or jot it down real quickly. Forget punctuation, spelling. Just jot it down real quickly what that resolution would look like. I'll tell you why in just a moment. What you would choose if you knew it wouldn't fail. And then in your Bible or your app, turn to Philippians 3. This is going to be the passage that's going to be great help for us today, not just in how we see Jesus more clearly, but in how we see our own hearts more clearly. Um, after this week, we jump back into our series on John in our series called Hero. Um, but if you've been here, and I know this is a scant crowd, some of you have been here around for maybe more than two or three years, listen, you know, as well as I do, this is my favorite time of year. I love New Year's. And so I knew it would be a small crowd, and I didn't care. I look forward to this service more than most services. I'm a real big honk when it, comes to, when it comes to New Year's resolution. So stay in Philippians 3. Did you know that if you go to YouTube, there are over 2,000 videos posted? And that's, that's actually not a big number on anything related to YouTube, right? That's a small number. But there are 2,000 videos posted of people recording when their car odometer turns over, right? Whether they're driving or, or whatever, they just kind of roll and then they take a snapshot of it and they, or, or they talk it out, they kind of narrate it, they post it. And we look at that, we think how nerdy that is. That's how nerdy I get about watching a year's odometer roll over. I'm really big on the 1st of January. I love this time more than Christmas. Not more than Jesus, just more than Christmas. I love New Year's more than Thanksgiving. I love it more than my own birthday. Only my wife's birthday beats New Year's, right? Hey, I know how to spin it. I know what to say. <laughs> Maybe I'm lying, right? But the last week of the year and the first week of the new year, that two-week transition strip between years, I spend probably 10 to 12 hours hours reflecting on all that happened in the, the year previous. Now, it's good or bad, how my heart reacted, where I saw problems in my own life, where I saw some growth maybe, where I think I might have seen some growth, full reflection. And then I spend a large amount of time within that 10 or 12 hours looking ahead and setting a list of goals where I want to see some resolute change for the next year. I do this every single year. I'm a huge goal setter. I'm a big believer in it, so New Year's is kind of my Super Bowl in that regard, right? I actually wrote about this in the monthly. I, I don't know if it's come out yet or if it's about to come out, but the monthly, I wrote about how other Christian leaders will set New Year's resolutions, but if you look on the front page of our website at LegacyKnoxville.com, you'll see a blog post at the bottom on how I do it. I have a 10-step process on how I establish resolutions. And I take you through all of it. I have links in there where you can get some other help on how to set a resolution. The name of the blog post is 2017 Resolutions That Don't Stink, because I think it's important to set resolutions that will actually succeed. And I know that even when I brought it up and some of you jotted it down or maybe just considered it in your mind for a moment, you thought, I'm writing this down, but I know it's not going to work. I mean, I'm thinking about it, but thought about it 366 days ago, too, and it didn't work this last year either, right? You see, I'm a total nerd, total nerd 
total nerd when it comes to transitions in, in clean blank slates. And, and ironically, a little bit of a side trail, this is how January became known as January. That's where the name came from. January um, comes from the name of the Greek mythological god of Janus, J-A-N-U-S, right? The Greeks that worship the false gods, they consider Janus to be the god of, wait for it, transitions. The god of beginnings and ends, actually doors and gates. That's what this god was known for. Now, I've heard some people consider that maybe that is why they would never set a New Year's resolution is because January and the whole idea of setting new ideas for a new year was based off of a Greek pagan system. It's usually the same people that still call January, January, even though it's named after a Greek god. And and the other 11 months to follow are too as well. But let me just say, it actually more accurately comes from what the Christians will celebrate as Lent. Now, we're not really big on Lent. I'm not against it. We're just not huge on it. You'll find Lent practiced a lot when it comes to Episcopalians, Lutherans, Catholics, some Anglicans, and a a smattering of other denominations. Lent is that 40-day span between Ash Wednesday and I, I think Easter morning, right, where Christians will put something down. They'll sacrifice or they'll fast from something. They bring great self-discipline to their life, a lot of prayer, a lot of repentance as they focus and reflect on the life, death, and life of Jesus Christ, right? Now, either way, whether it came from a pagan tradition or it came from Lent, I really don't care because I don't think it's pagan to resolve to change. I don't think setting goals is pagan in any way sense or form. I mean, culturally in the Western world, this just happens to be the day. This happens to be the season where we just resolve to live differently. And not all culture is bad, by the way, even if it was cultural. You know, one of the most helpful things I've learned when it comes to dealing with how culture operates and what we, how we should interact with it as Christians, I think it came from Mark Driscoll, and I don't know if it's original to him or not. Some pieces of culture we could just receive Some pieces of culture we have to just radically reject, and then other forms we redeem a little bit. So receive. I'm thinking of things like uh, Thanksgiving. We just celebrated it not too long ago, right? Didn't really have to redeem Thanksgiving too much, right? Not a lot of heavy lifting as a Christian for that. We just sit around, we eat, we watch the Cowboys game, we celebrate family, health, Take a nap, right? We're not working. That's kind of, it just, we're able to kind of just do that as Christians and not feel like we're all dirty inside, like we've sinned against God or something like that, right? It's Thanksgiving. But then other things that are considered culturally mainstream, like drunkenness, which is more of a joke than it is looked down upon, or pornography, those things we have to reject. Those are not redeemable. But then you get to this, this middle ground where there are things where some Christians can't really decide, can we celebrate this? Is this redeemable or do we have to leave it in the dust? Certainly you've bumped into Facebook Christian that declares war on Christmas, right? They see that as an unredeemable thing that cannot be celebrated. Or Halloween, I think maybe this fits into it, setting resolutions. I think it's something that we can redeem. On top of that, This is a time where our culture is already used to thinking about change, right? So you have great missional opportunities right now that you won't have as easily in other parts of the year, right? So track with me. You're in August, the month of August, and you're sitting on a bar stool, bar stool next to you. You lean over and you ask the guy or the girl, right, what do you want to change about your life? (laughs) They might get upset that you would even think that they want to change their life. They might ask you what... 
why, why do you even care? Why are you in my business? It seems like an intrusive question, right? It seems like it's too close. But friends, you could do that today. What do you want to change about your life? They'll have, they'll have a list of things that they would like to see change because we're used to thinking about that, right? So if you were to go to Aubrey's wherever today and sit at a bar stool and say, hey, man, happy New Year's. Yeah, happy New Year's to you. What are you going to change this next year? They're not going to puff up on you and say, hey, we don't know each other enough for you to talk to me like that, man. And I don't even have anything I want to change about my life. That doesn't happen. They'll say something like, I want to invest my money more. I'd like to lose some weight and get back to the old college shape. They'll have something to feed you, but it's not going to be an area where they're freaking out. This is an evangelical softball. It's a great opportunity for our culture, for us to talk about what would you, because it ends up being where they hang their hope a lot of time. Where would you like to change your life? I mean, you don't think they think about that. I thought about that before I knew Jesus, right? I want to make better grades. I want to get a really good job. I want to tuck away a ton of money. I would have just spelled it out for you. Year after year, as long as legacy has been legacy, I have preached on setting New Year's resolutions and how that is a great implication and manifestation of the gospel. And I'm already looking forward to doing it again next year. You know, I think not just the biblical implications of New Year's, but the gospel ramifications. Listen, hear me. When we resolve to change, what does the gospel have to do with that? There's freedom and grace in the gospel. You're free to fail in setting your resolutions. And you're free to succeed in setting goals to change in the new year. You're free to do both. So I love talking about this every year. You're free to fail in February. And in your failure, as you fail with your resolutions, your value has not changed in God's eyes. You are not less impressive. You are not less embraced by him. The gospel also says that Jesus' resolution, his ultimate resolution in endeavor to tackle the cross and take wrath and punishment on himself to graft you into a family you had no business being in, that that resolution succeeded because ours never could, because our resolutions always fall flat. You're free to fail because he didn't, but you're free from sin, so you're free to change as well. We're free to do both. You see, resolving to change is just intentional biblical living. It's just living. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, you couldn't get it fast enough, could you? Just rolled and rolled. That's what you get for buying a Yeti, too. That metal cup is just going to ring out. <laughs> I think there's nothing more biblical. Well, let me just say it a different way. Living an intentional Christian life is not pagan, it's biblical. Paul speaks emphatically on this in the Bible, but Jonathan Edwards does too a little bit. This might be interesting to some of you, right? Some of you, you might not even know who Jonathan Edwards is. Jonathan Edwards, if you're not familiar with who he was, he was a Puritan preacher way back in the 1700s when they dressed and talked funny, right? A long time ago, he was up in New England. He's one of the key figures in the First Great Awakening. Um, he's most well known as a preacher who preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's Jonathan Edwards. But before he was known for all of that, he was also known for a set and a list of 70 resolutions that he posted for everyone to read. This is amazing. Here's number seven on the resolutions, right? Resolved, he says, never to do anything 
which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. I like it. Number 20, resolved to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. All right? So we'll see how that goes, Jonathan. That's a tough one. Number 67, resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. So on the blog that I put online, as I already referred to on the front page of our website, inside that blog, I put a link to where you can find all 70 of these. You should go and read them. They're pretty inspiring. Here's what's interesting about those. He did that while he was a teenager. He wrote those while he was a teenager. I was reading them over this week. I've read them before, but I was kind of rereading them. And then I had flashbacks to what I was doing when I was his age, when he typed those out, when he penned those out. I was skipping health class at Lee High School and watching Saved by the Bell with all of my goony friends and trying to look cool in front of girls, probably picking my nose. This guy is writing out 70 resolutions for how he wants to serve God for the rest of his life. Now, what if he fails? Is he less impressive to God? No. God loves him as much as if he, if he nails all 70 of them perfectly and, and puts another 70 out there because those 70 are too easy and succeeds in those, God doesn't love him anymore. If he fails in all 70 of them, wretchedly false, God doesn't love him any less. So then it begs the question, then why even do it at all? Why set a resolution then? Why go through all the trouble if it doesn't garner me any more affection from God? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Look at Philippians 3. Philippians 3, this is Paul's word to a young church. I love this passage. Verse 12, he says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. It's a great passage. You know, Paul, I believe this. I, I, I don't know that I can state it as a fact, but I just believe that he must have been some sort of a has-been athlete, that he was an athlete at some point in his life, or maybe he cranked out a 5K every now and then, but he speaks so much in athletic terms, not just to this church, but to the church of Corinth. We see the same thing. But he is speaking in an athletic metaphor right now to a church that understands that. Because Philippi is seated firmly in the same place that became the genesis and the birthplace of what we consider the Olympics. They saw the precursor to the Olympic Games. Now back then it was equestrian, wrestling, boxing, but the one event that everybody showed up to see, running. Running was the digs back then. It's not now, you know, but back then it was all about running. So he speaks in terms of a runner. It's a picture of a runner running with a focused, right? focused run before him. And it says he's running towards the goal. Now that word is actually rendered out to be goal marker, not just the goal, but the goal marker. So today we would call that a finish line, right? So we see a runner running towards a finish line, not looking behind. That's a real dumb thing to do if you're a runner. You're just going to end up on the ground or tripping up or something like that. So focused on the finish line, not looking behind, not being distracted, but pushing, stretching, grinding, and straining. Why? Because there's a prize if you hit that goal marker. There's a prize waiting. 
You see, back then, they would have heard this understanding how the games work. It's important that we know how that, how that, how that kind of worked itself out, so we have a little bit of an idea of what was going on. Back then, they'd have these organizers or administrators. They're called the Hellenotikai. The Hellenotikai were the Greek administrators and rulers over the games, whatever the games would be called back then. They weren't called the Olympics like we call them the Olympics. But if someone won an event, the Hellenotikai would actually call out their first name, their family's name, the country they represent, and then they would put them up on a podium so they could stand above all the other competitors and they would give them a palm branch, right? Does that sound ironically close to what we still do today? I mean, we do the same thing today. There's their name announced, the country that they represent, even, even the, the country song is played, and they are not given a palm branch, they're given a gold medal, but they're still standing on a podium. By the way, this ascending to a podium is what I believe Paul is alluding to in this passage when he says an upward call. Let me reread it to you, right? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the, what is the prize? The upward call of God. So see it as the Hellenotikai calling somebody to stand up. So he is getting the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The gospel is affording him this place on the podium. This is gonna matter here in a moment as we unpack this a little bit more, right? But what is the prize? What would Paul have understood as the prize? It's very simple, very simple. It's the knowledge and the experience of the closeness of God. It's knowing how close God is and enjoying that proximity. And it's the experience of it all. It's both. The knowledge and the experience of the depth of closeness of God. That is the prize. Now, Paul is saying that that is not fully attainable in this lifetime. John agrees with him in 1 John 3. Stay where you're at. But John says this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So you see a definite closeness and proximity. But he's saying we're not quite there yet. Paul knows that. But he's saying I'm still going to fight. I'm still going to grind. I'm going to stretch, and I'm going to strain. Why? Because that's a beautiful place to be that closeness, even here on earth. The prize is the closeness that we get from God, both experientially and just even cognitively. I mean, just our, our knowing of how close we are and our experiencing emotionally of how close we are. There's no better place on earth to be than that. You see, the gospel of these passages, the good news in these passages is that you and I, if you were in fact a son or a daughter of King Jesus, you were standing at the top of a podium with a palm branch, which we learned several weeks ago stands for peace, by the way. You've been given the gift of peace as you stand, but you didn't even turn a performance in. You're a back of the packer. You couldn't even do it. He did it. He gives you the prize and stands you up there instead. And because of this, because of the gospel and how it rings true in our life, we stretch and we strain and we fight and we grind, and we resolve. We resolve. Because we've won. You know, I've been to hundreds of running events in my life, either as a competitor or as a coach. I've had several seasons. I'll even go to races or watch them on TV just to watch the race. You know what's the most fascinating thing for me in any kind of a foot race? 
It's not who wins or the speed. I really don't even care about the times. It's the strain. I love to watch that. There's something inspiring about that, something fascinating about that. I still get to coach today, coach high school runners, and I tell them before meets or I tell them in some chosen practices, I don't care how fast you run today. I care about how tough you run today. That's all I care about. Fast will take care of itself. The clock will do what the clock does. Don't really care. I want to see straining and grinding. I love it. I love it. To see the look on their face, the veins popping out of their necks, you know, their little calf muscles. I mean, they can't take any more tension. They're just solid as a rock. I mean, their lungs are heaving, and they can't take in or, or exhale one more cubic inch. Their faces flush. They collapse at the finish line. Man, I could watch that all day. Just the strain. I think that is what Paul is painting a picture of right now when he says straining, reaching, stretching. The best runners never look behind them. The best runners never do that. Their only focus is the finish line. Now, in the middle of the pack of any foot race or in the back of the pack, they can't really see the finish line. If you've done a 5K or a 10K and you've come around somewhere between, you know, place 100 and place 1,000, if that's you in life, right, you might not know this, but they actually still pull a ribbon across the finish line in a lot of races. Now, but if you're in the first three or four or five runners, you can see it. You're looking right at it. You're driving towards it and you are doing everything your body can do and more to get there before everyone else. Listen, no one dorks around and gets it done accidentally. You see a picture of resolve. They're driven to do this. Great intentionality. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an even better one, an imperishable wreath. He says, so I don't mess around. I'm not running aimlessly. I'm not shadow boxing as one beating the air. There's great purpose and intentionality to what I'm doing. There's great resolve found in my life. That's what we see in this passage, not messing around. Not because Paul wants to get something from God, but because he already got something from God. This is Paul speaking as a person who's already standing on the podium. He's already there. He's not trying to get up the podium. He understands who he is in Jesus. He's already received the reward that salvation has offered him. But he's still doing this. Still the great resolve. Still the incredible discipline. So listen, if 2017 is finding you and you are a Christian, strain this next year. Fight. Grind. Stretch. And then keep doing it over and over again. Not because there is a God yet to be pleased, but because our God has already been pleased, not in our actions as Christians, but in the actions of Jesus who competed for us with great intentionality, securing a spot for you and me with the palm branch of peace, announced not just to be representative of any country or any people or any name, but the name he has given us in the book of life as we represent a new family that we were grafted into that, again, we shouldn't even be there. That's why we do this. But what is a resolution? Forget New Year's for a moment. Just blanket. What about a resolution? What is a resolution when you think about it? 
It's simply coming to a firm, determined decision to endeavor to do something and following it through all the way to the finish without quitting, staying steady. That's what a resolve looks like. That's what a resolution is, and that's a very Christian action. That's a very, I don't care where the roots are. That's a Christian action to do something like that. We see the psalmist saying in Psalm 119, the Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your vows. Again, great resolve. You will see it all the way throughout the Bible. This is what David Paulison says. He's a great counselor, great theologian. When he thinks about a resolution, he says, when you resolve to do something, it means you formally express what you believe, will, or intend. It is a stand you take, a direction you choose. After thought and decision, you commit yourself to take steps along a trajectory which changes the destination of your life. Put that away, or put that way, the entire Christian life might be conceived as a lifelong determination to make and walk out new creation, everyday resolutions. See, if we just zoom out for a moment, our basic purpose on this planet is to what? It's to enjoy Jesus. That's, that's what the Westminster Catechism states, and I totally believe. Right? Our main purpose as we walk and swallow air on this planet is just to enjoy Jesus. And how do we best enjoy Jesus? By reflecting his glory. And how do we reflect his glory best? By enjoying him. So we enjoy Jesus, we reflect his glory, and we build disciples around us who will do what? Teach people around them to enjoy Jesus and reflect his glory and make disciples around them. And what will those disciples do? Enjoy Jesus, reflect his glory, and make more disciples? That's our basic purpose on earth. That's really why we're all here. This is done with great intentionality. You can't do that without resolve. You can't. Can't do it without bringing discipline to your life, without following through. You can't do that while quitting. That's what Paul is saying. No one messes around, halfway clocks in, and sees these things happen. You know, as we're looking at what a resolution is, a redeemed resolution, we'll say a gospel-informed resolution, a redeemed resolution does not focus on some of the things that we tend to focus on, like I'm just going to lose a little bit of weight, and that's where it just ends. Or I'm going to make more money. Or I'm going to invest more money. Or I'm going to read more. It's not all about that. A smart, redeemed resolution ends with us enjoying Jesus more and therefore reflecting his glory before a world. In other words, our resolutions are Jesus-focused and spirit-driven. Jesus-focused and spirit-driven, not self-focused and self-driven. That's important, to, that's important to mention because the world at large, the 84% of Knoxville that's not in a church service at all this weekend, the 84% that are coming up with resolutions, those who are, which is about 6 out of 10, those who do that, they don't have to come up with a reason of why those resolutions are resolutions. So says one bar stool to another. Hey, so what are you going to do? This next year, what's 2017 look like for you? I'm going to invest more money because I look to retire a little bit faster than I wanted to earlier. No one's going to say, golly, why would you do so explain that? What's your resolution? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go. At, I've already had a, a membership at Gold's. I'm just going to start going. You know, I had it from last January 1. It's just been sitting there. They're making money off me. So now I'm going to go and get my college shape back, whatever shape that was, right? 
That's what I'm going to do. No one says, well, that's interesting. Explain why you would like to do that. You see, for the world, they could be capricious and selfish and me-centered with all of their resolutions, and no one asks a question. But for the Christian, the why is the most important part. The why is the most important part of why you set goals the way you set them. The meat behind them. You know, a lot of my 10 to 12 hours that I stated earlier, that I take the time to set resolutions for the new year. I have 46 of them right now, by the way. <laughs> I'm supposed to go back today and shave them down, but I know I'm just going to add them all. I'm going to just do 50 because it's a round number, right? I just know I'm already going to do that. But with all 50 of those, I ask the question, why? Why is this on the paper? Why am I going to make this a specific goal that's measurable and trackable, that's bound by time, that can be accountable to others? Why am I going to spend the time really making this goal work? Is there something weird behind it? Is there something me-centered behind this? Or do I hope to land in a place where I'm enjoying Jesus and therefore reflecting the gospel in great grandeur? You see, sometimes we resolve to change our lives to prove something. We prove it to God. Maybe I'm going to prove myself to God. So what, I mean, what, what are the most basic Christian resolutions? I'm going to read the Bible this year all the way through, right? I mean, it's, it's at least in the top five. Or I'm going to pray more this year. By the way, that's a bad way to state a goal, to just do something more, to do something less. That's not, that's not a very effective goal. But when we do that, those are the very traditional ones we throw up there. But a lot of times we do that not because we want to enjoy Jesus, but because we want God to approve of us a little bit more. Maybe we think God will enjoy us more. Maybe we think that we will increase from God's hand if we actually read the Bible through every single day and we pray five times a day. If we do these things, then I will be a better Christian and a better Christian has a better life and a better life is more blessed and that's what I'm gonna do. So sometimes we try to prove ourselves to God. Sometimes we try to prove ourselves to other people. So I'm gonna read more. I'm gonna get in better shape, Right? has nothing to do with enjoying Jesus. It has to do with how other people will see us and therefore make us feel a certain way about ourselves. Sometimes we just try to prove things to ourselves, though, don't we? Like, I'm going to beat this addiction. Not because we would, in fact, enjoy Jesus more. And by enjoying Jesus, by the way, that is how you beat an addiction. It's a different sermon. But we do it because we want to feel tough inside like nothing can master us. We're trying to prove something to ourselves. It's all kinds of weird reasons. Now, all of those things I listed are, are good resolutions, right? Beating addictions, hey, check, right? Getting in better shape, being fit, healthy, check. Reading the Bible all the way through, check. Praying more often, check. See, the resolutions aren't cracked. The motives can be, though. And God really cares about that, where the motives are at. So look at your little card that you wrote on the thing that you jotted down when we first started, and ask yourself, why? Why did I type this down? Of all the things that Luke asked me to write down, I could have thought through, I could have put anything down, why did I put this down, and what is the why behind it? Consider that, just for a moment. Because as Christians, we don't set resolutions because 2016 didn't look Facebook-worthy enough for us. We just have to be a bit different than that. The gospel changes how we look even at goal setting. We set resolutions and goals so we can intentionally strain and stretch and grind to get to the finish line, the goal marker. Why? For the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that closeness, that experience of the depth of the love 
of God. As J.B. Phillips says it in his translation, grasping ever more firmly that purpose for which Jesus grasped me. Now, I know that many in the room, statistically four out of ten of you, many in the room, they don't really struggle with their motives when it comes to New Year's resolutions, and that's because you don't set any. Statistically, 38% of people are not doing this. And listen, I get it. New Year's resolutions, it's not a biblical value. It's not. It's a cultural value. I can agree with you, but I will ask you what your current working resolve to change looks like. How's that doing? What does that look like? Is it thought through? Is it considerate? Is it meditated over? Have you talked to others about it? Have you prayed over it? Have you asked the motives behind the resolution? Have you written them down? Have you rewritten them? Have you planned them? You know, a lot of us, we don't like it, resolutions, because we feel like it's dumb. But even for the four out of 10 of you that think it's dumb and won't do it, right, you still understand your need for change, right? Of course. Even the ones who won't indulge in a resolution know that they need to change. Also statistically, those who actually do write it down and go through the process of developing a goal or a resolution, they stand at 10 times more likelihood of succeeding in that goal. 10 times, those are good numbers. Those are good numbers. So if you wanna change, what room are you giving to being decisive and resolved to change? Were you providing space for that? And yes, I'm trying to meddle here a little bit. Because if we could just get rid of all the cultural words, this is discipleship we're talking about. <laughs> it's growing to look more like Jesus as we build disciples around us to look more like Jesus. Because what did he do? He enjoyed the Father. He enjoyed the Father and he reflected his glory. That's the purpose that we have here on earth. So I'm, I'm basically talking about setting goals to be a better disciple when you really cut through it all. That's really what we're looking at. I think that's what Paul's talking about. Do you have resolutions to defeat sin? Do you have goals to invest more in community or pray for your leaders or develop gospel fluency or to be more biblically literate? I mean, what, do you, what, what plan are you on? Because I think what most people do is they expect a church to do it for them. Like that's our job as leaders and as elders and staff to, to cook up some resolutions for you. Independent, on, independent of how God is working in you and around you right now. That, that's really not my job, though. It's your job. It's your job. Do you have these goals? You know, companies, churches, other entities that are out there, they have these things called mission statements, right? I actually have a mission statement as a person. You know you can do that? They have goals. They have values. They have strategies, as people, we think that's stupid. It works for companies and churches and 501c3s, but for people, no way that worked. No way. Resolutions, that's even worse. But not a single one of you in this room would invest all of your savings into a company that had no resolution to change, had no goals, had no eye towards the future, had no plan to overcome hurdles. None of you would do that. None of you would feel comfortable at Legacy Church if we just showed up and said, hey, listen, we deleted some pages off our website. It happened to be the values and the goals and the mission statement because, after all, if we all just show up, that's good enough, right? You would increasingly become very uncomfortable with that. 
So why is the same value not true for individuals that make up the church? To have some sort of a plan of attack for the next year, informed by how they did in the previous year and how the gospel gives them freedom to fail and freedom to succeed. How do we do this? I've talked about what they are, why they are. I'd like to talk just real briefly before we cash out. I'd like to talk about how. Jonathan Edwards says this. I love it. It takes all the pressure off of us, realistically. He says, being sensible. This is posted before his 70. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Simply said, Edwards knew that everything he does depends on the power of God. Even his growth in holiness depended on the power and the hand and the plan of God. This is why Paul says in Philippians, the chapter before the one we're in today, in Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That means what it sounds like it means, right? So you wake up in the morning and you think to yourself, I want to lead my family a little better this year. You thought that was you. That wasn't you. God gave you that will to even think that. Why would he do that? For his good pleasure. Or that first book you finished with your wife or your husband. Or that resolution that you really put your heart to and you actually followed through and you stuck the landing and it worked for once. And not only that, it happened before the end of the year. It happened like Halloween-ish. You know, I mean, you just, you got it done. You're like, wow, I had a resolution and I finished it. And it was good and I enjoy God more. You didn't do, God did that through you. Why would he do that? For his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. No matter how much resolve and discipline you throw at your life, you cannot do anything apart from the grace of God that is work in us through the power of his Holy Spirit. You cannot. You cannot. Whatever your goal is, whatever your resolution, whatever your game plan, you have to depend on the Holy Spirit and rely on his grace to enable you to change. This is what a prayer sounds like. If you're praying, Jesus, I have a great idea. I'm pretty sure you gave it to me, though, because it's great. And I want to change in this regard in 2017. Now, I think that's what you would like, and I think I would enjoy you more along the process of doing this. So I'm just submitting it to you. Is this a good resolution? I feel like it is. And if it is, I'm going to need your help because there's a reason I've not been able to do this in the past. In fact, this was a resolution I had the year before and the year before and the year before. So can you give me the ability and the power to do this? And can you give me the grace for myself when I fail? Can you do this through me? Why do we go through this process? Because that's where joy is found. The closeness of how we know and experience who God is. It's the most beautiful place on earth. Nothing can compete with that. Listen, I'm not going to go through all the practicals on how to do New Year's resolutions. You can look at the blog for that. As I said, I broke it down into 10 steps because 10 is an even number, and that's how I think, right? So you have 10 even steps. It could have been like 13, right? But if you walk through those, you will come out with New Year's resolutions if you spend the time to actually go through it. So I'm not going to break it down how to do a SMART goal and things like that. But what I would like to do is just talk just for my last minute or two up here on things that you can count on as you do this. What can you count on as you try to walk out a game plan to be a more gospel-informed disciple in 2017? Well, you can count on failing. And you can count on failing a lot, repeatedly, right? 
me and Dr. Clint were talking about that a little bit this week, and when I was bringing up the word resolve a bunch, he said, you know, the thing about that word resolve, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of wiggle room with that word. There is not. He's right. I mean, you saw it up there. You saw Jonathan Edwards. I resolve to be temperate in all things food and, and drink. And I'm thinking, wow, that sounds like he's not giving himself any room for mistakes. That's what a resolve looks like. But that means there's no wiggle room. We're, we're going to fail. We're going to fail often. But God has grace for us when we fail in our resolved endeavors. God has as much grace for you in March as he does on January 1, even though February saw the end of a lot of your resolutions. February ends up being the dumpster of good intentions, doesn't it? The gym gets skinny again. Not as many people in there. The diets kind of go by the wayside. The Bible diet we can't even find anymore. Left our Bible at church, so I'm not doing that anymore. But did you know that if you set 100 resolutions and failed in 200 of them, God has grace for you? God has grace for you because one resolution was followed all the way through to the end without quitting. But you also have grace to succeed and to change. We're loved in our failures. We're not measured. We're valued in our failures. We're not ridiculed. But we also have, we also have the power of the Holy Spirit to change. The second thing you can count on, count on evaluating and reevaluating because change does occur slowly and it actually happens better when we readdress them. This is why most leadership experts in just about any sector or industry will tell you, write it down. Write it down, don't just write it down, but write it down in a place you can see it frequently, right? And I go through this in the blog post, but constantly go back. I call it my dashboard. Look at your dashboard often. What does a win look like? Why is that even a win? Is it a smart goal? Is it even working? Is it gospel enriched? Is it for your glory? Is it for God's glory? Third and final, count on recruiting others to help you. Now, this is where it gets difficult. Change occurs best when community is involved. It just does. Kevin Gentry preaches on this probably two out of three sermons when he used to preach. Change is a community endeavor. Recruit others into it. Just a couple days ago, I emailed all 46 of my resolutions to a good friend. He doesn't even go to this church. A good friend. He's emailing me his list, and we're going to edit each other's lists and look for cracked motives. Why? Because who better to do it? Someone else is going to see my list, or they're going to hear me talk it out. If I'm meeting with someone here in Knoxville, hey, this is kind of my big idea for 2017. They're going to be able to hear it and go, hmm, it sounds like there's a little bit of you mixed up in there, or it looks like you're being a little easy with that goal. I mean, like, my nine-year-old can do that, right? Might need to rethink that. Or, that seems unattainable. Or, how does that help you enjoy Jesus more? Or, how does that reflect God's glory more? See, bringing community in brings a dialogue in that we just can't manufacture when we go solo. And it also brings accountability so that when Jan January ends and July comes and October comes, someone can say, hey, how's it going with fill in the blank? How's that working for you? People can sniff it out. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand up with me. I'm going to just address a couple groups, and then we're going to pray. I've addressed three different groups in here, basically, if we could break it down. Some of you, you have weird motives. Big on goal setting, but there's cracks underneath the resolutions. A lot of me and self-glory, not a lot of how is God glorified in this resolution. So you have a lot to think about as we worship, as we take communion, 
as you consider those very resolutions. Another group in here that we talked about, those who have no resolution or plan at all. Really nothing to distinguish next year from this last year. 2017 is probably just going to look like 2016 all over again for you, really. No good growth happens when there is no good plan. It doesn't have to look like mine. It doesn't have to look like Jonathan Edwards. You don't have to be a dork about it. You've got to really think it through. What does discipleship look like for you? Is someone else going to be involved with walking you through in discipleship? Hey, who are you going to disciple? Who are you going to disciple? Right? These are things to think out. And then I think the third group I didn't speak directly to, it's those who fail a lot in their endeavors. You set a lot of resolutions. You're very fearful that you're going to fail in a lot of them. You will. We all know that. What kind of grace are you experiencing from God in that? God is most glorified in you in a failed endeavor like that when you receive his grace and you know that you know. He is most glorified in you when you know that you know that you are not loved any less. You could fail a thousand times and enjoy that closeness. Enjoy his grace towards you. And I do think maybe some of you will struggle because you are lost, very far from Jesus. You're straining, striving, fighting, all for the wrong prize, all for the wrong reason, straining, stretching, driving in the wrong direction. You're running the wrong race. And you know, when you're running the wrong way, you're never going to win. You'll never find the podium. There will be no peace branch given to you. You're straight up just not even going the right way. But the gospel says your straining can be over. It can end. You know, we're about to sing. The band's going to lead us, and we're going to have the elements in the back, the broken bread, the spilt blood. And as we take communion as a church, that's just the sign. That's just the sign and a symbol of a life that was well resolved, broken all the way to the very end for you. That's what first place looked like. That's what the top of the podium looked like. A body broken into pieces. Lifeblood spilt out. And we get to stand and receive that prize even though we didn't even turn a performance in. It's good news for us. It's a visual gospel display for you and me. And as we take that, as we take that, as we take the blood, as we take the bread, as we take it with families, we take it alone, as we take it with community, do so in remembrance of him running a race for you. Do so in remembrance of him receiving a punishment due for you. Do so in remembrance of him handing you a victory you couldn't even win. Do so in remembrance of him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you that this year... I only have resolutions and plans and goals because you've given them to me. <laughs> you've given me the, even the desire to do something like that. And Father, I thank you that even in this church, but even right now, I don't know how many goals and plans for 2017 are represented. I, I, would, I would say maybe hundreds. There's probably hundreds of different ideas and hopes and dreams. God, that they would all bend underneath your lordship that these would be goals and plans to be disciples that reflect your glory and enjoy you, not just make us more infatuated with ourself, not just that make us look better. And Father, we have big goals. 
I could speak for people here, that we have goals that might be hard to make very metric. I want to be less anxious this year. Not quite sure how to write that down. Not quite sure how to make that measurable or trackable. I want to be less angry. I want to be less self-fascinated. Help us, Lord, recruit others into our life as they help us walk out a very different year. Not because there's any pixie dust on 2017 and it's some special year that 2016 wasn't, but because it's in front of us and not behind us. And as we run this race, we're not looking back, but we're looking forward for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You were so good to us. Help us. Help us, even in driving and designing a plan. Help us in carrying it out, not for our own good, but for your glory and for your good pleasure. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.